Awesome. Woo! Have you guys been doing some of the good, do good challenge this month? I know that we did the cards, but this is another good one. Um, so we're going to open up in prayer, uh, especially for today's message. I really just want to start with prayer. God, we give today to you. We give this time to you. We give this message to you. I pray right now that you open up all of our hearts, Lord, that only what you want to be said comes out of my mouth, anything else that it gets held back, Lord. And I pray that your presence is here and that we all encourage each other today and, and leave just focusing on you and rejoicing about how awesome you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I get the honor of teaching a super easy subject. It's just, is the Bible reliable, right? Super easy. <laughs> Here, Pastor Dan, I'm like, I didn't want to talk about sin and the problem of sin, but then is the Bible reliable? It's another tough question, right? We're talking about touchy subjects this month. Um, and Pastor Chris opened it up and he talked about is the Bible reliable a little bit in the first week, but I want to expand upon that today because it's such an important subject. And in your notes, if you have your notes, I left you more room for notes this time because it's going to be a little more fact-heavy, a little less story-heavy like I normally do. There will be stories. Um, but this subject, we need to give a little bit more weight to. We need to give a little bit more space to. And we don't talk about it all the time, but it is important that we discuss it because it's that important, right? So the first thing that we want to do is discover um, how the Bible came into being. How did it come into being in the first place? And the first thing you want to do, so if you have your notes, go ahead, pull them out. You could write them on your phone. Um, in the ancient Near Eastern world, the, the world of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they focused and they passed down information. They passed down stories through, uh, through telling stories, oral communication. So the Bible initially was came into being through oral communication. Your grandfather would tell your father, your father would tell you, you would tell your kids. And if you're anything like me, you're hearing this and you're like the stories of creation, the story um, of Noah, of all of that stuff that, of how the world came to be. And you're thinking, I play telephone for five minutes and Jenny who has a new car is now Jenny who has, lives afar, right? It changes over time. The difference is in the ancient Near East, when they believed that a message was from God, when it was communicated, it was words of wisdom from God, they took hold of it and it was precious to them. They did not want to mess this up. So they were very particular about how they passed it on. And I want to tell you guys, um, if you think about um, telling your guys a kid, your kids a bedtime story, do you have any ones that came up for you? I know we always tell the story of Goldilocks and the three bears and the three little pigs. I have three kids. So it's been about six years that I've been telling these two stories. We tell other ones, but it always goes back to, no, mommy, tell this one, tell this one, over and over and over again. Now, after just two weeks of doing that with one kid, if I change the slightest word in the story, they're like, mommy, that's not how it goes. Her bed wasn't full of moths. Her bed was soft. Um, it, they catch these things, right? And how much more important would it be if these are um, words of wisdom from God, right? Or it was your family's history. In the ancient Near East, this is what they would do. They would pass down stories because they didn't have TV, right? They didn't have books to read. They didn't have the radio to turn on. But what would you do if you're making dinner with your daughters? What would you do if you're going out and you're hunting with your son? What would you do before bed? What kind of stories are you telling your kids? 
You're gonna pass down the most important, the, the ones of your family history, the ones of the God who created everything. So they're passing it down word to word from their kid to their kid to their kid, so on and so forth, so, so far. So, far. Um, so oral communication. The next thing, so we have oral communication. That's how it came into being. But these are, there are 66 books in the Bible 66, written over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors, three languages, three continents, yet somehow there's only one message. It's the message of God, the God that was the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who loves us, even when we turn our backs on him, he's consistently coming after us, he's consistently there, he's consistently redeeming us. This is the story that we get in this amazing book. Now, my teacher, and I think I've showed you guys this before in Bible college, he said, this book carries our family history. And I wrote it down because to me that was so special. Now I look at it, yes, it contains our family history, but really it's not my history that's in here. This is God's story that's in here. That's what we get to have. And it comes in an amazing form. It comes in poetry. It comes in biographies, it comes in law, it comes in letters. There's so many different genres inside of the Bible, yet somehow over 2,000 years, with 66 different authors, it maintains the same story. That unity that goes across the Bible is why we say that the Bible is inspired. You can throw the verse up. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true what, and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. He uses it to equip us to do every good work because sometimes we get straight, sometimes we get off, right? And it is the inspired word of God. So we can see that the unity in the Bible is also important, right? So we have oral communication, how it came into being, unity across the board, which is how we say that it's inspired. But also you wanna look at uh, cross text. Now, when you're looking um, at the scripture, when you're looking at any ancient artifact, any ancient text, one way you can check it is by looking to see how many versions of it there are. The really, really cool thing about the Bible that I love is that there are 24,000 manuscripts around the ancient world of our text. This is by far, um, it has the most by far from any other ancient text, 24,000 manuscripts. And prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1946 and 1947, the earliest surviving copies of the Hebrew Bible we have date back to 1000 BC, or sorry, not BC, 1000 AD. So today is 2023, so it was about 1,023 years ago, okay? Now that's very far removed from when Jesus was alive, right? 1000 to the year like 30, 35, that's a big gap in there. But then when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were able to find fragments of every book of the Bible except for Esther, and guess how, what kind of accuracy it is? It's 99.5% accurate comparing documents that were now 250 BC all the way to 1000 AD. Do you see, the, that's crazy. Over 1200 years, 
that in that 0.5%, what changed is grammatical, grammatical things or language. It was nothing of content. So we have basically, essentially, the same work from 250 BC all the way to 1,000. And when you cross them and you look and you compare, the Bible is pretty darn accurate. It's amazing how it has maintained its accuracy over the time. But also, what I love is that um, when it, you compare it to other ancient texts, the, another ancient text that we talk about is Homer's Iliad, right? And that goes back to eight, uh, 800 BC. It only has 650 Greek manuscripts. And we consider that an accurate ancient text. So would you see that our 24,000 manuscripts, which are 99.5 accurate, is pretty reliable? I'd say it's pretty darn reliable. Another thing I like to do is I'm like, okay, well, it maintained its accuracy, right? But did anyone else ever talk about this Jesus guy that wasn't a Christian? Because Christians, what if they just fluffed it up? Right? What if they just left it up? Well, there are at least nine other sources that talked about Jesus in the same way that we talk about Jesus. Some of those that we have are Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny. Josephus wrote, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. This is not a Christian author. There are nine sources that talk about Jesus that confirm that he was a living and breathing person and has nothing to do with scripture. I love that. I love that. And I could go on and on about the types of parchment or papyrus or whatever was used to write the Bible. I could talk about that, but I feel like I laid the ground. The Bible is reliable, okay? Um, And that's gonna take us to the point one. The Bible is reliable, but... The Bible is reliable, but we aren't reliable in our interpretation of it. Okay, now that I've offended like at least a quarter of the room, maybe half of the room, we can keep going a little bit. We aren't reliable in our interpretation of it. Romans 13, one through seven, instructs us to submit to governing authorities because God establishes authority. Now, some of you might have heard of this passage. Uh, may, some of you, it might be the first time you're hearing of it, but we say in this passage, a letter to the Romans, he's saying that you have to submit to governing authorities, right? Okay, well, I'd like to take you back to Germany, 1933, on a Sunday morning at a Protestant church. Well, the Nazi regime is the existing government. Therefore, it's established by God. If you rebel against it, you're rebelling against God. That's a message that was preached between that time frame of 1933 to 1945 in Germany, in churches. If you wanna follow God, then you have to submit to the governing authorities. I'd say that that's a, that's, that's a misuse of scripture, right? For centuries, Ephesians 6.5 says, uh, for centuries, Ephesians 6.5 says, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. It was used in sermons of slave owners to their slaves on a Sunday morning to say that God approves of slavery. I have heard in my own, just listening to political arguments, Matthew 26, 11, it says the poor, this is Jesus speaking, the poor you will always have with you. This was used to discourage any spending programs on the poor since they're always gonna be there anyway. 
And that goes completely against what Jesus was even quoting. He was quoting Deuteronomy 15, and it was, uh, it was saying to not be hard-hearted and to not be tight-fisted against your neighbor, yet they're using it in politics to do the complete opposite, which is just baffling. Or maybe you've heard this said, and it makes me laugh, um, in advertising for companies that they'll go the extra mile for you. Have you ever heard that? Uh, do you remember Matthew 5:41? If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. <laughs> I don't think they're talking about, you know, being good to your customers. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's, I mean, even in the secular world, people are using scripture poorly to get your point across. And I have a really funny meme. This one cracks me up if you could throw it up. I love this one. Okay, we have Luke 4, 7. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And this is encouraging quotes, Bible verses on a daily calendar. Does anyone know who said this? Anyone? Satan. Yep, Satan said this to Jesus when he was trying to tempt him in the desert. And I love that we'll take a verse out of context and try to use it as a daily inspirational quote. If you'll worship me, then all will be thine. Oh, okay. Because we, and we use it poorly, right? It cracks me up. And I know uh, some of you are like, okay, well, I'm not gonna, I didn't do any of that stuff. You know, I'm okay. Uh, or I, I, take the, I take the Bible literally. I take it literally, so I'm okay. And I'm like, okay, that works some of the time. But the thing is that there are so many different genres in the Bible. You know, there's, um, there's revelation that's prophetic. We have, so we have prophecy, we have law, we have letters, we have biographies. If I were to write a letter to you and you say it's now law, that doesn't make any sense because I write some really funny things in my letters and I'm saying that now this is law, right? We have to read it. I read it literarily. I, le I read it with the type of literature that it is. So instead of reading literally, I'm le reading literarily. So if it's poetry, I'm gonna read it as poetry. If, I were, if you were to give me a biography and you were to read it like prophecy or you have prophecy and you read it like a biography, that's gonna be very confusing because there's so much imagery and things like that you're supposed to think about and it's representative of things. It doesn't make sense for a biography, right? So we have to read the Bible the way that God gave it to us in its own genre, in its own specific genre. Now I have some other passages. Maybe you've heard some of these. These are ones personally that I've heard used out of context that confused me while growing up. The first one, Psalm 37, four. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. <sighs> now, when I was single, I don't know why this verse is always used to single people. If you, please don't say this to a single person. I, <laughs> when I was single, people would say this to me, delight yourself in the Lord, he's gonna give you the desires of your heart. I, okay, but I desire a man right now, okay? Like, I, I love God. I'm reading my Bible, I'm worshiping God, but where's my man at, right? Um, yet we see that. Do you remember in which this was written? David wrote it when he was on the run for his life and people were chasing him down and he's hiding for his own life and he's talking about an eternal principle. He's talking about, I'm gonna have hope no matter what. I'm gonna keep seeking after God. And eventually, even if I die like this, eventually God will give me the desires of my heart, which are to be with him, that eternal hope. It's talking about an eternal hope. It's not talking about me worshiping and reading my Bible and then suddenly I have a man, okay? Please don't say this to any single people because 
It's not fine. Uh, <laughs> Romans 8, 28. This is a fun one. And we know that in all things, God works for good for those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Man, I love this one in youth group. We, made, we had songs about it like 10 to 15 years ago uh, when I was in Bible college. We'd always sing, you know, you make all things work together for your good uh, or for my good. And it was a popular worship song. The problem is how we read it. We read it as God's gonna make things work out for my good in this moment now, in this life now. And anything that happens is gonna work out for my good. And I have this hope immediately that I'm gonna have uh, the life I want, the job I want, the friends I want, all of this, but that's not what it's talking to. If you read the passage around it, the scriptures right before and after it are talking about an eternal hope again. So things might happen now, even if I starve to death, I, for whatever reason, I don't have enough money for food and I'm starving and I'm going to be dying. I know that everything's gonna work out for God's good, that there is an eternal hope that I have. That's what this passage is talking about. It's not just, oh honey, all things are gonna work out for good. Like, I think about Paul. Paul on his journeys, right, shipwrecked, beaten, thrown in prison. Those aren't good things, but it's for God's good, amen? Okay, we have Matthew 20, 18, 20. This, <laughs> this one, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, Pentecostal home, Pentecostal school. This one was used all the time. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. But wait, isn't God already living in me? If I believe in God, he's already in me. Yet suddenly he disappears and he's only there if two or three of us are there. Now I'm confused. As a kid, I was so confused. I was like, okay, God lives in me, but then he's not really there, but then he reappear, reappears when two or three of us, especially if we're praying, because two, two or three are gathered, then he's there, right? So it's when we're praying, we're really powerful, then he's really there. Um, as an adult, I didn't touch this because it didn't make sense to me. I didn't say it at all because it didn't make sense to me. Well, if you look at the passage around it, this is talking about church discipline. So you bring up something up to someone, they're, they're out of line, they're doing something that's harmful. Um, you bring it up to them, they don't listen. Gather someone else, bring a couple up to them. Are they listening now? You address them again and again, and he's saying that as you approach them, as you give this church discipline to them, that don't worry about the consequences because they need to leave if they're not listening. They're not being responsive and they need to leave. And don't worry about the consequences because there I am with you. Where two or three are gathered, there I am. That's what the passage means. It's not that suddenly if your small group dwindles down to two people, you're like, well, God is with us because we're two or three gathered. It's not that, okay? So let's stop using it as that. Uh, very confusing as a little kid where I thought that God was with me and then he wasn't with me. Yeah. So sometimes we get things wrong. Can we just say like, sometimes we get things, let's all say it together. Sometimes we get things wrong. Uh, amen about that, okay. Um, Sometimes we get things wrong. But you wouldn't be here now if you weren't curious about the story that's in this book, the precious story. It's a story of God. Sometimes we can open it up, sometimes we could read it and it's simple. Sometimes we open it up, sometimes we read it and it's not simple, it's complex and we need to have more tools when we read it, right? Second Peter, uh, Simon was writing to a church were churches that Paul had already written to. And he says this, 
So Paul already wrote to them. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. What he's saying here is some things that Paul wrote to you already, some things in the scripture you have are hard to understand. Some people are gonna twist them. Some people are gonna use them to their own advantages. But now that you're aware of this, you need to make sure that you're not thrown astray. I'm telling you now, there are people, there are politicians, there are preachers, which I hate to say that, but there are. There are different people, there are family members who are trying to use scripture to their own advantage and it can be hurtful. It can be destructive, but it's not made to be hurtful and destructive. This is made to give hope and eternal hope. This is made to give life. And it is our responsibility to make sure that we are making sure life comes from it because that's the story that was given to us. It was a life-giving story. So point two, and I only have two points, so don't worry. So first we have that the Bible is reliable. We are not reliable but God is the only source of reliability. God is the only source of reliability. Who in here gardens? Raise your hand if you garden. I wanna see some fellow gardeners. I, I don't really have, uh, I shouldn't be raising my hand. So if any of you, if any of you have come to my house you, and you haven't asked questions, you might think that I'm a gardener because you come in our backyard and we have trellises and we have, we're growing eggplant and cucumber and okra and zucchini and green beans and bell peppers and onions and all this stuff, right? Tomatoes, all the good stuff. Strawberries, watermelon, there's, there's more, I so much. But I'm not the true gardener. My mom is the gardener and she's very consistent. She's back there all the time. She's watering everything. She's fertilizing everything. She's spraying off the leaves. She's doing all the stuff you should do. And my dad and my brother have been gardening longer. Yet for some reason, my mom has the green thumb. Everything grows for her until two weeks ago. My mom uh, had a fall and she fractured her ankle. So guess who is the new gardener? Me and Jared, we're the new gardeners in there. And we are not gardeners. So immediately when this happened, my mom's like, you gotta go water the plants for me. Please go water the plants for me. Okay, but just so you know, my life is very full and my schedule changes and we're gonna do our best. We are gonna do our best. Our life isn't set up to be gardeners, but we are gonna do our best. And things are growing and we're picking the food and it's, you know, the kids are playing in the backyard or they're helping me with the food and put it in the basket and stuff, which is going okay until Thursday. And the green beans look sad. Um, some of them are starting to dry up and the, the okra, some of them are falling over. And um, I'm not very reliable. Jared isn't very reliable when it comes to gardening because our lives are so full and inconsistent with where we're at in our schedules. And what our garden needs is my mom. It needs her to heal up so that this garden has something reliable to make sure it gets its nutrition that it needs. And we're trying our best. We sure are trying our best. We had a good haul of green beans yesterday, but man, it's... Uh, I feel really bad, I had to tell my mom. I was like, mom, I'm sorry, I don't know what's gonna be alive and what isn't, but I I'm, I'm really am trying. 
So reliability, we need reliability. The Bible is reliable. We aren't, but God is. Remember how we talked about how the Bible is the inspired word of God? Yeah, the Holy Spirit inspired the words through the authors. It's the same Holy Spirit that's living inside of you. So wouldn't it make sense that every time we approach scripture, we pray, we talk to God. We are like, God, you inspired the scripture to be written. You can help me interpret it. Every single time we're coming to the scripture. Doesn't matter if you're reading it devotionally, biblical study, whatever. You are, you are paying attention. You are praying. Now we read in John 16, 13, 14, it says, but when the spirit of the truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is still going to happen. He will bring me glory. That's because what he receives from me, he will show to you. Now this is Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit coming to them. Jesus talking about how the Holy Spirit's gonna come to us. Whatever Jesus once said, the Holy Spirit's gonna tell us, right? And then we also, he's gonna keep us in the loop. James 1, 5. If any of you need wisdom, you should ask God and it will be given to you. And I love this version because of how it says this. God is generous and he won't correct you for asking. He's generous. He wants to share with you. He wants you to be enlightened. He wants to grow you up in maturity as a believer. And all we have to do is ask. All we have to do is go to Jesus and ask. Now, yes, it seems easy to just consult with God, but what does that look like? Okay, so imagine this. You have two parents and the baby is about to start walking and is trying. And you have one baby who's hold, like one parent who's holding the baby and the baby is like, eh, trying to do it. And the other parents on the other side going, come here, come here, sweetie, you can do it. Come here, has the arms out. And, and it's just very exciting. It's the slowest game of catch between two parents that you will ever see. They're just sitting there. And then, so you're playing catch with your kids for a few days, right? Back and forth, and you're very excited about it. It's the best thing on the planet, and your kid learns to walk on their own. So excited. But think of this other scenario. You have two parents there, and you're like, come on, honey, come on. And the baby's just sitting on the ground like this. Just sitting on the ground, and it's like, you know what? I'm sorry, I didn't tell the video people. Um, sitting on the ground and is like, you know what? My parents are here. I don't need to do anything, right? My parents are here. I don't need to do anything. The kid would not walk. Just like that, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, but we've got to walk. He'll stand beside us. He'll hold our hand, but he's not going to do the walking for you. Remember, God used people he could have just had the Bible written, but instead he used us, he used people. Those people had to put in the work too to make sure that the Bible got written down. Just like us, we need to do the work too so that we interpret it well, so that we're not using it poorly, so that I'm not a confused little girl saying, is God in me or not in me right now? Is he with me or not with me? Because when two or three are people here, then he's there. We need to be able to do these things better, to do them well, so that other people have hope and understanding and they understand Jesus. It's a spiritual act. Reading the Bible, studying the Bible is a spiritual act. He's gonna guide us into truth. He's gonna hold our hand, but he's not gonna do the walking for us. Now there are two types of reading that we generally talk about when we talk about uh, reading the Bible. There's devotional reading and there's biblical study. Devotional reading. Devotional reading was what I grew up with. That was the way that you did it. You get with God. This is, oh, I love devotional reading because it helps to grow you up in spiritual maturity. It helps attune your ears to God's voice in that way. It's more of a heart thing. Um, 
You might have a passage, you're reading it, and you're asking yourself, okay, what's standing out to me right now? Oh, this line is standing out to me, or this is, and you're praying and you're saying, God, okay, how do I apply that to my life? That's more devotional reading. And then you have biblical study. Biblical study is different. Instead of trying to figure out what God's saying to you in that moment, you're trying to figure out the truth of the text. You're trying to see the truth that is already there, that God already had inspired and that is there, and you're trying to figure out that truth. But the problem is with that truth is that there's a river. You could think of it like a river and there's two towns. This is the original audience. This is who the book was written to, the letter. All of that was written to was right here. And then there's a river. And this river consists of language. There's a language barrier, right? There's a couple of thousands of years. There's cultural differences. There's literary differences, grammatical differences. All this kind of stuff is in the river and makes it difficult for us to understand on our own. What we need to do is build a bridge to the other side. We have to build that bridge so that we can get from here what the Bible intended to say to how we can apply it to our lives today. And I have some questions in your notes. You can pull those out, you can look at them, and I'll, I'll say them out loud here, the river. You're gonna ask three questions as you're doing some biblical study. There are many ways to interpret the Bible. There are many ways to do studying. I'm just gonna give you some simple questions. Ask yourself as you're reading a passage, as best as I can tell, what did this passage mean to the original audience when it was written? When Paul wrote to the Galatians, when Paul wrote to the Philippians, what was he trying to say to them? As I'm reading this passage, how would they have understood it? Sometimes having an extra commentary, lexicon, uh, map, sometimes resources like that can help you understand more. You don't need to be a biblical scholar, go to school for seven years to understand. But sometimes these tools can help you out too. But if not, you can still ask, what does it sound like the author is trying to say to this person? What message was trying to get across? Okay, second question. You're asking, what is the main principle what, what, does this, what does this say about God? What does this say about people? What does this say about how God interacts with people? That's the second one. You wanna see what is that main principle that I get from it? And then the third one is, okay, now that I knew what it meant to them, I have this principle, how can I apply that to my own life? You're providing a bridge to get from what is so beautiful, what is so wonderful, but we're trying to understand this letter. We're trying to understand this law. We're trying to understand how that can apply to my life and it's different. But it doesn't mean that we can't understand. It doesn't mean that God can't speak to us. He's gonna hold our hand as we walk through this process. We're praying to him, we're talking to him through it, but he wants to grow us up in maturity. And the, the third one was, how does it apply to me? So the challenge for us this week as you get in this amazing book that God gave us is to talk to him. Come humbly. Don't think that you know everything because God might show you something different. Maybe you're reading something and you've always thought of it this way because this is what your old pastor used to say, or this is what your Sunday school teacher used to say. And it seems to contradict with a different point of scripture. And you're like, this doesn't make sense. Study it, figure out why. Read the verses above it, below it. Figure out why there's a difference there. You could do that. You, I could do that. You could do that. Study it. Come to it. Ask God. God's going to walk you through this process. He's going to be there for you because he wants you to have the hope. He wants you to be encouraged. He wants you to be a light to other people. 
And I believe that you will be, and I believe that you are now, but we can take it even further. We can grow in our spiritual maturity together, all of us in this room. Amen. So if you're, I'm going to challenge you, if you are a studier, you love biblical study, I'm going to challenge you to get into some devotional study. Read it and just ask God, God, what are you trying to say to my heart right now? If you are normally a devotional reader, like I grew up being, I challenge you to get into some biblical study. Ask these questions, ask what did it mean to them? What's the principle? How do I apply it to my life? Grow in your maturity, grow in your walk with God this week. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your living and breathing word. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for showing us your story. Please, Lord, help all of us to grow in maturity. Help us all to become more like you. Help us to love people well. Help this to be life transformative, that our lives are changed because of what we learn from you from it. Bless each person in this room and their week. In Jesus' name, amen.